At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a bi-weekly radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. You know, you start to find out what is your intention for this experience you call your life? What are you trying to do with it? And that really helped me get clear that doing drugs and and lying and cheating and stealing don't work because I can't get where I want to go with those issues. They don't work. And I began to really want to be helpful to people. And now I'm at a place where I don't know what to do with me. <laughs> Welcome to At Home on Air. I'm Susie Stadler, the Executive Director of At Home with Growing Older. Thank you for tuning in to this episode, Here is to Life, a conversation featuring internationally renowned 92-year-old jazz vocalist Ed Reed and his wife Diane. Our host for this episode is Jill Stoner. She's professor of the Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley, and an advisory board member of At Home with Growing Older. She will now start our conversation with Ed and Diane. How I came to know Ed Reed. In 2003 and four, and then again in 2007, I worked at San Quentin Prison teaching English in their college program, and then later as a reentry counselor. And a very close friend of mine in Connecticut who knew I was doing this work and who also knew about my love of jazz, sent me a CD and said, you need to listen to this and you should get to know this guy, Ed Reed. So I listened to the CD and then I went online and found a concert that was happening in Berkeley. And I attended that concert actually became kind of a groupie and was bold enough to introduce myself to him and his wife, Diane. So the context of how I came to know about Ed is this intersection of jazz and prison. I just wanted to start, Ed, with asking you to say a little bit about growing up in Watts and your early exposure to jazz as a very young person. I grew up in Watts. We came to California from Cleveland, Ohio in 1936. I had been listening in my aunt's, I'd been listening to her recordings and I just couldn't get enough of them. And this is the, in 1936, 1935 and six, because we came to California in six. Anyway, I became really turned on by those jazz players. I couldn't get enough of them. 
my aunt had a, a three-story house where she had her laundry. And from the basement to the top of the house was people ironing and washing and doing whatever they had to do with laundry stuff. And so I became a singer. I went from the basement to the top of the house singing every day, and they gave me money. So I learned a lot of songs, and I was going from the bottom to the top singing. <laughs> it, was, it was really something special, and I learned to play a Victrola. What was I? Four or five years old, and I'm playing this Victrola. I wanted to hear Cab Calloway and uh, Duke Ellington. In your book, you told a story about when you were in high school, maybe wanting to join the debate team and being advised in another direction. Am I remembering that right? I'm blown away that you remember that. Yeah, I wanted to join the debate society. I was good in school then. I had good grades and everything. And the guy told me, you people ain't got nothing to debate. Why don't you join shoe shop? And I left school. I must have been 15, 16, and I left school and joined the Army. What was your interest in the debate team? Were you interested in actually bringing an African-American perspective into conversation, or did you just think it looked like fun to be part of a debating team, or did you think you might be moving toward the direction of studying law? What was the attraction? It was about talking about our days in Watts and what we were doing with those days and what was being done to us in those days. And he didn't want to hear a word of that. So that was why I left. It seems like such an important moment in your life that that one teacher or debate coach actually had this huge effect on a decision that then led to other things and other things and other things. Is that how you remember it, you know, as a turning point? Oh, yes because I left school. I said, I'm not staying here. And this is all he's teaching. And he's not gonna allow me to be taught what he's teaching. It wasn't a very safe place anyway, because Watts was, oh boy, the police were always on somebody's case. I wanted to raise my status. I wanted to be, more accepted at a higher rate. I mean, raising your status by raising your voice, really. Well, it was raising my status by raising what I was talking about. So it's interesting to just kind of pull that thread forward because your voice actually became your future. I want to talk about Another thing from the book, which actually connects very much to this notion of voice, how you learned songs in prison. You talked about 
the ways in which a whole group of people would piece together the lyrics of songs that you heard and also learn to play the music? There were a lot of musicians and the Warden Show had some of the greatest musicians in the world. And, you know, we had been addicts, most of us. And I ran into this guy, this guitar player, and I couldn't believe what he was doing with that guitar. And I couldn't walk away from him. He and I began to play every day. I was learning so much from him. The Warden Show was a show for the best musicians. It was once a month, and they had people from outside come and listen to the band and have a dinner, and they would talk to them about the prison. And Art Pepper was the other one. He and I were in the band room one day and we heard this tune. I can't remember what it was now, but I loved it. A Sleeping Bee, that's what it was. You're talking about Art Pepper? Yes. He was in prison with you? Yes. Really? Yes. With many, many other jazz greats, all of whom were busted for drugs. Has there been a book written about this? Not, not that I know of. Oh my gosh. Ed talks about it in our book. So I wanted to ask a little bit about how your music and your re-entry when you came out of prison the fourth time, how did music actually shape what came next? Because it was a long time before you recorded your first CD, right? Oh yeah. I didn't record until Diane and I had been married a long time. Were you performing in those years? Were you performing at the same Bay Area venues? I was trying to. You were in LA. Yeah, I was in LA and my mother really liked Dupree. I met him walking down our street one day and I knew who he was because somebody else had told me how great he was. And he and I went back and forth and then I stole some money orders and passed them out and all of us went back to the penitentiary. And for me, it was San Quentin. For him, it was Soledad. I got out and I ran into Dexter Gordon one day. He wanted some dope, so I, I took him to get some dope. We had the same parole officer, and somehow the parole officer came with three or four policemen, and they arrested us. And Dexter Gordon and I, they sent us back to the prison. Oh, boy. It was just nuts. So Ed, after you started performing, did anyone show up from the past? Did any of your parole officers ever show up at a concert and say, hey, I remember you? Was there a kind of link between these very different chapters of your life? Yeah, my parole officer came to my wedding to Diane. Wow. The first one. <laughs> 
Ed and I met in 1968, and I never knew he was a singer. Ed didn't really start singing professionally again until the 90s. If you think back on all your performances, which ones really stand out to you? Which ones were you connected in the most profound way with the music or with your audience? Because I think most people would look at your resume and say, oh, Lincoln Center, you know, that was the top. That was a pinnacle of career. But I just wonder if you have different ways of looking back on your performances and ones that were really meaningful for you. Well, what year were we in Europe, Diane? 2009. 2009. In Bern, Switzerland. Yeah, Bern, Switzerland. And then when we did New York and Aretha Franklin came and sat down with us. Very first CD release concert that Ed had at Yoshi's in Oakland was in 2007. And it got a huge write-up in the San Francisco Chronicle, a big front page article on the entertainment section. And Ed's picture took up three quarters of the page. The show was sold out because it got so much publicity. A lot of friends of Ed's who had been in different treatment programs with him ended up coming. I remember in the very beginning, he stood in front of the audience, which was totally packed room. And he just looked at the audience and he said, did you see that article about me in the Chronicle? That picture I thought was a wanted poster. (laughs) (laughs) There were many because he had such good bands. He had such good musicians playing with him. And the interaction between the musicians could be so magical. Just yesterday, day before yesterday, Anton Schwartz came down from Seattle. He's a tenor player, and we've done a lot of recordings. And it was just magic when he walked in the room the day before yesterday. We didn't do any music, but the magic is with him. I'm just going to shift gears a little bit and talk about the other half, Ed, of your working life, which is what you've called your day job your work with people in recovery. I don't know a lot about it, but maybe you could just talk a little bit about what drew you to this work, the kinds of people that you've met and how you developed the material for this series of lectures and workshops. You know, when I got into recovery, I stopped using drugs. I started understanding where people were coming from with their addictions. And I began working in adolescent treatment program and they got me working with the parents of the clients. And I loved it, but I left there and I started thinking about how to do this in a different way. I started working in another program at at Kaiser. Then I went to Newbridge in Berkeley and I worked there for a long time. I started really coming up with my own view of what recovery is about. And it really caught on with people. 
And you wrote a whole eight-part series called The Art and Practice of Living Well. What is your own approach? What were the, the ways that you reshaped the whole notion of recovery? Well, you know, one of the first things I ask people is, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Ordinary people don't come to this place. What are you doing here? People have a hard time uncovering themselves. They're so shameful. And my thing is get rid of the shame. The art and practice of living well is about let go. And when you can be honest with yourself, you can get sober. You don't need to take a drug anymore. And I did that for a long time. I'm ready to go back and do it some more because I love it. I think one of the things that distinguishes Ed's approach in treatment programs from the norm is that he says it's not about drugs and alcohol. It's about you and it's about who you are and your background and what brought you here. So my thing is to help people from the outset get clear about why you're here, what you're doing here, and who you are as a consequence of your addiction. I would love to be talking to people about this every day. Many people are just twisted and they can't find their way. This book project that you've both done together, there's almost a cliche of, you know, reaching a point in your life where you feel there's an urgency now in getting a story out into the world. The kind of classic story of, you know, the person retires and then they write their memoirs. Can you say a little bit about where the idea for the book came from and when? Yeah, so Ed, this was in about 2009, and this was a couple of years after Ed really hit the jazz world with a lot of unexpected surprises. I couldn't believe where he came from and where he had been all this time. But there were journalists who interviewed Ed extensively, and all of them used to say, you ought to write a book about your story. It's amazing. So we really started thinking about it in terms of, you know, we've been through 18 hard years in the mm. beginning before I got into Al-Anon and got into AA. And, and then we had many years of recovery together afterwards. We started thinking it would be a good idea because we have a story to tell and it's hopeful. It shows the change is possible. And that maybe if we wrote our story, it would help other people who were struggling with, you know, addiction, relationships, that whole thing. And it did take us 10 years to write. But we just started from the beginning and Ed wrote his piece. I wrote my parts. We had to do it that way because especially during those first 18 years, we were together, but we really weren't. I mean, there's so much heaviness with addiction, codependence, it's just, it's a really difficult situation. And so I didn't really know who Ed was and he didn't really know who I was. So we sort of at least had to write those early years separately. Ed at some point joined a memoir writing group in about 2014, 13, something like that. And he loved it. And so, you know, he'd bring his chapters in and he'd read them and got a lot of great feedback, a lot of help. 
And we were writing, you know, in between doing work, in between touring. Sometimes the writing would get so hard, at least for me, I'd have to stop for a while because it was just too painful. At some point, Ed decided that he would drop out of the memoir group because he, he had the Newbridge two-hour class in the morning in the same day, and he just was too tired. He just didn't want to do both on the same day. Somebody from the group called and asked if I wanted to join and she said, we know Ed's side, now we want to hear yours. <laughs> so <laughs> I actually joined and it was probably the best thing that I've ever done because it really helped get me through, it, it pushed me. So little by little, you know, we ended up finishing, we actually finished it in, in 2018 and then have been trying to figure out how to get it out into the world since then. So we're about to do that now. Could you say something about the title, Double Helix? The double helix idea came from somebody in our group who, after listening to our respective stories, thought it was an interesting kind of symbol, a way of describing our relationship. A double helix, it twists around, is connected, but you know there are two ends and they're not really connected. So Ed and I have been swirling around each other's lives for a long time. And it just, it just resonated. We got into recovery. Mm -hmm. And we were speaking the same language. We were both in 12-step programs. So we had the same foundation to build on. We understood each other. We had, you know, the concepts we could deal with. I mean, we had tools finally, and yeah. we never did before. I mean, we did persist. <laughs> we were very stubborn, but we had a lot of barriers to overcome. We had a lot of history to get past arguments and squabbles and, and lies, lies, and, lies and, and stealing cheating so what is the central theme of the book what do you want your readers to take away from it i would want them to understand that change is possible mm -hmm. that you can start from a very seemingly absolutely failed place and, you know, it's possible to, to have your dreams no matter how old you are. Mm -hmm. It's possible to come out of whatever you're in if you're willing to do the work. Because the work part was really, really hard. That commitment was, was difficult. I think there were times, in, especially in early recovery, when I started feeling a sense of joy that I had never felt before in my life. It, sometimes Ed and I would, you know, just sort of look at each other and think, how did we come this far? This is so great. We'd really just love to have Ed reflect a little bit on how the past year and a half, not only losing sight, but also the isolation of the pandemic. The challenge was that I couldn't see. That was the big thing, but it's amazing. I've been able to get through it. I've been walking through the house, walking into walls and things, not much, not much. I have had that collision here and there, but for the most part, I've been getting along pretty well by myself. I'm learning and I don't know what else to say about it. It's just been amazing for me. Oh boy, Adam Schulman and I, we've been having a good time with the music. You know, there came a point when everyone felt confident enough to try for a new gig in the spring. It was Mother's Day and we put 
each of our mothers picture on the front where the musicians were and it was sold out. The crowd was nuts. They didn't want me to stop. <laughs> so it was so much fun. I couldn't believe it. It was just amazing. So that gave me, gave me spirit to really get back with my music. And no matter that I couldn't see, I, I'm going to get through it. Just bringing us back a little bit to the idea that at home with growing older feels very much like a kind of context for this story that you're telling, that there has to be an acceptance of the idea that it is hard work. It's a long journey. It's a kind of home for, you know, making that journey. The notion of practice also seems very relevant to me. It is about the kind of repetition of doing things well over a sustained period of time to get from one place to another. There is no instant way of transporting yourself from, you know, from one place to a better place. To me, being 95 is a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's sort of, that's sort of true. And well, well, do you, do you feel 90. the same way? Being 90. <laughs> uh, yeah, the idea that you have to not only work on all the things to know yourself, you know, but then you become also more work for yourself the older you get. I just think it's really interesting to think about this journey that you've taken as a kind of overall lesson, but somehow with music as this thread that goes all the way back to when you were five years old, you know, and, and going up those stairs and learning those early songs. All I can say is it's gotten easier for us over time, and it's taken a long, 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 long time. You know, you start to find out what is your intention for this experience you call your life? What are you trying to do with it? And that really helped me get clear that doing drugs and, and lying and cheating and stealing don't work because I can't get where I wanna go with those issues. They don't work. And I began to really want to be helpful to people. And now I'm at a place where I don't know what to do with me. <laughs> Well, you're doing something valuable right now, sharing your story. That should give you a lot of joy right there. Thank you so much. It was really, uh, really fun to have this conversation about serious things, but also to recognize it can't all be too serious. You are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. In the beginning, when it was so, so hard and Ed was using, and I was in my raging 
codependent enabling phase with him before I learned better. I just always believed, you know, I wanted to see that person who inspired me when I first met him, who was the charismatic community organizer and inspired other people and, and knew so many answers for other people, although he didn't know them for himself or couldn't apply them to himself. And I just held on to that until I got so bottomed out, so burned out emotionally that I had to get some help for myself. And that's when I went to Al-Anon. When Ed, this was like the icing on the cake, a couple of years later, got into AA and started practicing his recovery. We were both doing it. And I just felt for me at the time that if we could come this far, if we could be really working together now at this point in our lives, after so much so many hard years, there wasn't any question, you know, I wasn't going anywhere. I wanted to see what was going to happen next. Then Ed got into music, which was many years after that. That was truly, he calls it dessert. I mean, it, it is, it's the richest. So it just keeps going. Well, you know, I figured out how to not use drugs, helping other people, all of that. And what I started understanding is that I really have to pay attention to what I'm saying, where I'm going, who I'm hanging out with. I need to know what I'm doing. I need to clarify my intention. And that's not easy sometimes. You know, I had all those years of going to prison and, and, and doing drugs and, you know, just being miserable and to begin to not do that. That was amazing. But then later on, after I had had some clean time and I started working with people who were trying to deal with their own addiction, it just got to be really bright and sunny for me. I'm so grateful and my wife, Diane is such a wonderful woman. She's sitting here with her arm around my arm. <laughs> and and that's, that's, that's the norm. Thanks. I mean, I guess it was sort of clear from the end of the interview that during the course of the first year of the pandemic, Ed also lost his eyesight. And so, Ed, I just want to share with you that as you're speaking, everyone's heads are nodding up and down, just feeling, you know, agreement with what you and Diane are sharing. It's really fun to see everybody on screen. Another question from Rachel to both of you. Do you think paying attention is something that gets easier with age? For me, it has. Paying attention as I've grown older, it's much easier. If I'm going down the wrong street, I don't have to go to the end. I can say, wait a minute, let me let me look at the map. Let me let me pull to the curb here. Because if I'm going down the wrong street, why am I doing it? What's the point? I need to turn around and go down another street. And I used to not be able to do that. I would just waste my time, my energy, my money, everything, trying to be what I think other people are doing and how good they're having a life. 
And that's not it. It's about what am I doing? What's my life like? Am I at peace? Am I having a wonderful time with my wife? So when you talk about paying attention, you really mean paying attention to yourself. Yes, yes. What are you doing? Where are you going? What are your thoughts? And why are you thinking like that? Have you talked to anybody about how you're feeling? Are you, are you willing to let go of it? It's a lot of stuff, but you start to be willing to letting go, to be honest, open, and willing. I think it's almost necessary to be paying more attention as you get older. There's so many changes happening and things start rattling around in your head. Like, okay, you haven't dealt with this yet. What are you going to do about it? And that, I think, was a lot of the inspiration that drove both of us as we were writing the book, because I think we had covered so many things that we had never really put together before. We connected a lot of dots. Ed does a lot of work unpacking addiction and how he got into that, how it all happened and how he stayed in it. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how did I become myself? And I learned so much from, from doing that work and doing that writing, which is why at times it was so hard to do, so painful to do. But at the end of it, it was like having shed a thousand pounds. Mm-hmm. It, it truly was. I started walking around. My head felt emptier. I wasn't carrying around secrets and I wasn't carrying around shame that I had felt for so long because of mistakes I had made, things I didn't feel good about. So we went all out. This whole thing is about self-examination, as it turns out. It didn't start that way. I wasn't going to say much about myself at all until, you know, Ed said, you have to. (laughs) So here's a question from Sarah. We're all recognizing how inspiring you are to us listening to you. But who inspires you today, musically or otherwise? I'm inspired by the people... When you say today, it feels like this has been life for so long, being somewhat isolated and not being able to you know, live the life that we were living before the pandemic. I am inspired by the people in my memoir group who are writing courageously about themselves, humorously about events in their lives, doing a lot of their own self-examination. We sort of feed each other's courage to be able to keep unpacking things because Here we are. We are really at the other end of our life. And if we don't do it now to feel better, to just get it out of ourselves, it's never going to happen. So that's that's what rings my bell. You know, I spent so much time trying to help other people in drug programs. And some people just unhappy and blaming it on somebody else. Well, I start to want to help people understand that if you're unhappy, that's about you. And that ain't about what somebody else is not doing or they're not doing what you want them to do. That ain't about them. That's about you. Why are you trying to get somebody else to be what you want? And, you know, I I spent so much time trying to make somebody happy. I can't do that until I find out my own path. How can I become 
joyous and, and peaceful and without so much fear and shame and all of those things that just are troubling. I got to be honest about what I'm doing. I got to be open and willing to change and grow. Until I started doing that, no way would I have been sitting here talking about this stuff because I had too much shame in my own body. And I don't have that now, and it's wonderful. What has also been very inspiring to me this past year and a half are all the artists who have kept going, who have done amazing work, the music, the art. I know that there have been friends of ours who have bravely released CDs during this time. Claire D, her name I saw flash by, and Maggie McCaig. You know, releasing CDs in a year when you can't go out and perform to other people is hard, but the music just lives on and music continues. And that gives me hope that, you know, at least in our community, people are finding other ways to get out into the world. Our friend Anton Schwartz would go out on his front porch every night at six o'clock with his saxophone and he would play a tune. And pretty soon the whole neighborhood was gathering outside. He and his wife, Dawn, used to do house concerts. And Ed and I have been up there a number of times doing concerts at their house. And so he just did it every single night. And I love that story. And I know he's not alone. There are others too. Those are the people that help keep us going. Here's a question from Mariah, and it's to both of you. How did you each balance your personal recoveries and or lives while also working at being there for each other? What advice do you have for others who are balancing being support for their loved ones while also dealing with large challenges in their own life? Around the time we both got into recovery was when I got my graduate degree in public health. So I was just starting on a new career. I was starting on a new path. You know, we always made room. We always made room and space for each other. We had very busy lives. Ed was off doing all kinds of consulting jobs while he was working at Kaiser. I was doing consulting also. So we were all over the place but we always made time for each other. One of the things that we started doing together was I would go to AA meetings sometimes with Ed on holidays, on special occasions for people's recovery birthday celebrations. And we'd stay connected that way, just going to AA conventions. The second time we got married in 1989, <laughs> it was kind of a spur of the moment little thing when Ed just said, let's get married. And so we threw together this little brown bag lunch up there at the open rose garden and invited whoever could come. And then we spent the night at an AA convention in Oakland. <laughs> I mean, it was like, we have something that we have in common finally, and we are going to milk it for all it's worth. That's right. So it wasn't a hard thing to do. And then when we started doing music together, and I was managing, you know, the business aspects and everything. We were actually working together for the first time on an ongoing, very exciting project, many projects. You just decide you're going to do it and do it. It sounds like the partnership got stronger and stronger. It sustains you in this amazing way. You know, until yeah. you are able to talk about yourself, you don't know who you are. I never had an honest clue 
about me because I never was being, I want to say honesty, but I don't want to use that word, but that's what it was. Anybody who wants to hear about me, I will tell them because I don't want to hold it. I need to let go of it so that I can feel free. And golly, man, that has been so wonderful. And it's not always the way I'd like it, but it's better than it's ever been glorious. I'd like to turn the questions outward now and ask people in the audience if anyone has heard Ed Reed in concert and wants to say a few words about that experience. Hi, I'm Susan. I met Ed at jazz camp the first time when Diane sent him there. (laughs) And we were some of the older people there, along Mm -hmm. with these teenagers. After that, Ed and Diane have come up and done house concerts for us. I've also heard him at Anton Schwartz's place. Amazing, amazing singer. If you have not heard him, if you have not bought one of his CDs, you are missing out. I totally agree. My favorite song that he does, Here's to Life, which we also chose as the title of tonight's At Home on Air. Ed and Diane, the chat is full of good wishes, thanks, and admiration. Many people saying, we have no questions. We just so appreciate your voices and your approach to this thing we called life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Thank you so much, Ed and Diane. Thank you for all who participated and keep playing Ed Reed. There are lots of songs and albums on Spotify. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.